Before we jump into the text this morning, let's just bow and ask the Lord to help us, and then we will turn our attention to the scripture and we will get to work. So if you would, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we just say thank you for your word to us this morning. Father, it is a comfort to those of us who may struggle with certain long-standing prejudices, even those biases of which we may not even be aware. Lord, it is comforting to us to know that Peter also struggled with some of those very same things. As we encounter the Apostle Peter this morning, Lord, and how you addressed his prejudice, our prayer, Father, is that you would also look into our hearts and that you would also help us to see this morning by the light of your word whether or not there are any similar sort of biases or prejudices that linger inside of us. Father, our prayer this morning is that you would make us here at First Baptist Church a people who have a heart of compassion for all the world. Our prayer this morning is that you would, this morning, help us to see the beauty and the place in which they belong, all people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation, to belong together with us as sons and daughters of you, O Lord. We pray you do that work this morning in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit through the scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. For all of our many differences, such as race, creed, culture, even gender, and obviously nationality, people all over the world have at least one thing in common. We are all prejudiced. It's a stubborn, thorny weed that grows in every heart, and it draws nourishment from the rotting decay of culture all around us, which reinforces our ideas of our way is the best way and everybody else is weird. And as a result of that, it oftentimes inhibits our ability to see the beauty of what God has done in other people in other countries around the world. The creeping of prejudice into our hearts can happen so gradually that it can happen without us even noticing it. It takes hold in unexpected ways. We're familiar, all of us, with the most common way, the most common variety, which is racial prejudice. But it can happen in other ways as well. It could be a prejudice against people not only of certain colors of skin or specific nationalities, but it can also be against certain economic status. It can be against certain marital status, clothing, the way a person dresses, and so forth. We tend to look at people by first looking at ourselves and judging people based on our own preferences of what we like or dislike. And oftentimes, past experiences or tradition can so shape and guide our view of the world that we're not able to see the people whom God created, whom he loved, and whom he died for. Everyone has a prejudice of some form. Your prejudice is probably not the same as my prejudice, but some form of it tries to grow in every heart. This morning as we jump into Acts chapter 10, we're going to encounter the apostle Peter as we've been looking at him over the last two weeks. Peter, the hero of the Jerusalem congregation, and arguably uh, probably one of the most courageous Christians of the church in the first two decades of the church's existence, struggles with 
prejudice, and we're going to see that in the passage this morning. He struggled with prejudice, and fortunately for Peter and the church and you and me, God was not content to allow that attitude to remain. Look with me, chapter 10, verse 9. We looked last week at uh, the fact that there was in Caesarea a man named Cornelius. He was a Gentile. He was of the Italian cohort, most likely from Italy proper. He was in the Roman army. He was served Caesar. And he is a Christian. He is a devout man, a God-fearing man, as the text said. And God comes to him and says, I want to bless you, but what you need to do to be blessed is you need to send a couple of guys to find this Peter fellow, which is hanging out in Joppa. And so he did. And we pick it up in verse 9. It says, The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter, who's in Joppa, staying with a man named Simon, who's a tanner, has a house by the sea. Simon goes up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry. Right about this moment in time, all those food-safe illustrations start to pop into my head. He became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And so while they were preparing it, that is being careful not to cross-contaminate on the cutting board, make sure all the food is cooked to 74 degrees Celsius. We avoid the danger zone from 4 to 60 degrees Celsius, which is when pathogens can multiply at a rate of doubling every 20 minutes. Just want you guys to know I went to FoodSafe yesterday, okay? So these guys in the first century were preparing the food, probably according to FoodSafe standards. Doesn't say, but we can assume. And while they're preparing it, Peter, it says, fell into a trance, okay? He falls into a trance. Verse 11, in this vision, it says that he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending and being let down from the four corners upon the earth. He looks up, he sees this giant sort of picnic blanket coming down, and setting upon the earth. And the next verse says, in verse 12, in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So he observes all of these creatures in it. And two in particular are noted for us, birds of the air and reptiles. And then there's a voice that comes to him and it says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And this is when Peter raises the objection. He says, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time and said, What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has cleansed, what God has made pure, what God has cleaned, it is not your place, Peter, to say that this is unclean or common. Now, this is all pertaining to a sheet with some creeping crawly things in it that Peter is told to eat and he doesn't want to eat it. Now he's having this vision as the men from from Cornelius are approaching. Verse 16, this happened three times. The thing was taken up at once into heaven. Verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. The imagery that Luke uses here is quite, you know, he's moving through the story. Suddenly, behold, look, check it out. As Peter is having this vision, those guys from Cornelius, who is a Gentile, they're here. So they're at the gate knocking. And it says in verse, uh, um, 
it says that they stood at the gate, verse 18, they called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. They're looking for Peter specifically. Verse 19, while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Now notice, there are three men sent from Cornelius to find Peter, and the sheet with all the birds and the reptiles and the creepy crawly things in it has been let down from heaven three times. He has a vision of this happening. Three times the thing comes up and down from heaven. And then suddenly, Peter says, at the gate are three men, all Gentiles, most likely soldiers. Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. Now, God appears to Peter. He has this vision of the sheet. Suddenly, the vision of the sheet goes up and down three times. Suddenly, these three guys show up. They're all Gentiles. And then the Spirit says to Peter, you need to go with these guys. I am the one who has sent them. Don't hesitate to go with them. Where to understand from this text, and Peter's going to make this explicitly clear when he meets Cornelius, and we'll see this next week, when he presents the gospel to Cornelius, Peter's mind is quite clear on the significance of this vision. What's going on here is God is telling Peter that he should not have any hesitation, that there should not be any check in his heart, there should not be any caution or any questioning or any wondering whether or not it is right for him to go with these three Gentile non-Jewish men to accompany them and to preach the gospel to another man, one named Cornelius, who is also Gentile. In Peter's mind, and undoubtedly what is pervasive throughout the church at this point in history, is that Christianity, the worship of Jesus, is predominantly a Jewish movement. The early church in Jerusalem is described as being made up, obviously, of Jews from Jerusalem, as well as Jews who are not from Jerusalem. But the clear understanding is the composition of the church at this point in time is still largely Jewish, although we have already seen, if we are careful to remind ourselves, the ministry of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch and those accounts, we have already seen that the gospel has been proclaimed to Gentiles. And yet here's Peter being called upon by a man named Cornelius to come see him and to preach the gospel to him. And God is confronting Peter, saying to Peter, what I have called clean, what I have made clean, you are not to call common. I want you to look back here for just a second. Verse 12. I want you to notice this. What exactly is it that Peter is struggling with? Is it that he views Gentiles as being unworthy of the gospel? Or is it that he is worried about him associating with Gentiles and what that might do to his relationship with God? I argue that it's actually the latter, not the former. Look at verse 12. In it were all kinds of animals. Notice the expression, all kinds of animals. In this particular sheet that comes down from heaven, you had your normal fare, your hamburgers, your hot dogs, the good stuff that you were allowed to eat, and then you had the weird stuff that you should stay away from, like birds and reptiles and lizards and these kinds of things. And Peter, being Jewish, was raised according to a certain standard of kosher etiquette. When you eat your food, you needed to eat certain kinds of food, and that food could not come into contact with other food that was 
unclean. For all of my food safe friends yesterday, we call this direct contamination. But what Peter is observing here in this particular sheet is an example of indirect contamination as well as direct contamination. You see, the sheet has been stained by the reptiles and the birds, the things that Peter is not allowed to eat. And while there are other animals in it that he could eat, the whole thing being lumped together in this picnic blanket has now become so mixed up that even though there are undoubtedly animals he could eat, they've all been touched by things that are impure, which he, as a Jewish man, is prohibited from eating. The point of the vision, then, is one of purity and one of contamination. And there is scriptural backing for this. In the book of Leviticus, don't flip there, just listen. In chapter 10, specifically, verse 8, what God speaks to Aaron is word for word what Peter is saying here in response to God and why he has never had anything to do with birds and reptiles. In Leviticus chapter 10, the Lord is speaking to Aaron and he says to him, drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting. That is the tabernacle. They haven't built the temple yet. So the tabernacle, which is the mobile sort of version of the temple, the place where they go to offer sacrifices and to worship God according to the Old Testament, according to the Old Covenant. So essentially what God is saying is when you go to worship, you shouldn't be drunk when you go to worship. Obviously, his desire is that his priests and those who come to worship him would be of their right minds, sober-minded, and ready to come and know the one true God and to be in their right minds when they do so. So he's giving these directions. And then he makes a statement, verse 10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common and between the unclean and the clean. Now, He has just said to them, when you come to worship, don't be drunk, for you are to know the difference between, he doesn't say what is right and wrong, although that would have worked. He says, you are to know the difference between what is common and holy, what is clean and what is unclean. And so what God is trying to show the Israelite nation is that approaching him is, in fact, a matter of purity, that our sin contaminates us. In order to help them understand this point by means of an object lesson, you you could call it that, he puts on them an enormous number of restrictions. And of course, during this time in Israel's history, there are probably significant health benefits from following these restrictions. It probably did, in fact, help in terms of disease and pathogens and all these sorts of things. But he makes it clear to them what the nations eat, birds, reptiles, all these kinds of things, you are not to eat. And as you work your way through the book of Leviticus, not only are there restrictions in terms of the foods that you eat, there are restrictions in terms of touching dead bodies, in terms of even associating with individuals who have touched dead bodies. All of these things are said to make you impure, unclean, and if you're engaged in these practices in which you become unclean, you then have to go through a process of ritual cleansing before you can come back to the temple or the tabernacle and worship the Lord. So Jews understand that there are strict requirements put upon them for how they are to associate with others, how they are to remain spiritually and physically pure, and how if they don't observe these things, it will impact their ability to draw near to the Lord and to worship the Lord. 
you see all that, and you see that Peter here, as he's instructed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit says to him, don't hesitate to go with these men, which means that when these men show up, Peter would have hesitated. He would have hemmed and hawed and, gee, fellas, I'd really like to go with you and tell you about Jesus. I mean, wouldn't you? We talk about going out and being evangelistic all the time, and we all know the difficulty of it. Can you imagine somebody just knocking on the front door of the church saying, hey, I'd like to know what you guys are all about here. Sign me up. I'm ready to be a follower of Jesus. I mean, we wouldn't hesitate for one second. All right, brother, let me sit you down and tell you the gospel. These men show up. It's like perfect, low-hanging fruit. Zero effort. I make a short day trip over to this other city. We're going to see some people get saved. But the problem is, they're Gentile. I'm Jewish. And there's a hesitation, a, a check in Peter's mind. If I go with them, what will that do for me in my worship of the Lord? This is not the first time Peter has had to learn this lesson. You'll recall, this has been clear all throughout the ministry of Jesus. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says to all of the disciples, right as he's about to ascend up into heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, which is fine. Jerusalem is a Jewish place to live, and Judea, that's a Jewish place to live. And Samaria, whoa, we got problems with the Samaritans because they're not of pure Jewish ethnicity. But then Jesus compounds it even further. He says, you're going to be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, to all nations. And in case you don't think that's actually what Jesus is saying in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he did say it elsewhere. Same event recorded slightly different by the author Matthew. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, 19, and 20, Jesus says to the disciples, right as he's about to ascend into heaven, same setting, same location, he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Greek word for nations, Gentile. Make disciples of all Gentiles. Go into all the nations and make, all, make, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus has been quite clear. We are to go everywhere. We are to tell everyone about the good news of a God who loves us and died for us, which means, yeah, there are races, yeah, there are different ethnicities, yeah, there are different nationalities, but that's the point. God wants to save all mankind, regardless of, of where they come from, regardless of what country they were born in, regardless of what ethnicity. He loves the world, as John 3.16 says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever should believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Peter has to hear this message time and time and time again. In fact, He's had Jesus teach it to him. He himself has observed through the ministry of Philip and others that the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. And here he is now, even here in Acts chapter 10, being told by the Lord, don't hesitate, don't have this check in your heart, just go with these guys, preach the gospel to Cornelius. And yet even after this event, a few years later on, 
he's still going to struggle with this. In the book of Galatians, the apostle Paul tells us, as he is associating with men in Antioch, with Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish believers, he records for us in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 16, he says to the church at Galatia, he says, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. These are strong words from one brother to another. I got in his face. Why? Why did you do that, Paul? Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, James being back in Jerusalem, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was engaging in table fellowship with non-Jewish individuals. But when they came, that is the men from Jerusalem, from James, when they came, that is when other Jewish Christians showed up, he drew back and he separated himself, fearing, was it God? Was it that he was fearing becoming ritually impure or unclean? Was it that he was afraid that somehow he was going to hinder his ability to worship God? No. Paul says when the men from James show up, Peter drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. He wasn't afraid of God. He was afraid of his fellow Jews. Paul goes on. He says, The rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews. How can you do that? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. It's only through faith. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Essentially what Paul is saying is it doesn't matter that we're Jewish and that we have the law and that we have all these customs and traditions. No one, no one goes to heaven. No one is forgiven apart from faith in Christ. Peter had to be taught this lesson repeatedly, as we've seen. It was deeply entrenched in him. It was something that was deeply ingrained in him as a result of his upbringing, his Jewish heritage. It's a lesson that he needed to learn and be reminded of time and again and I wonder if it's not a lesson that we need to be reminded of, that we need to learn time and time again. All of us will look at other people, and all of us, on occasion, will hesitate, perhaps struggle, maybe even go so far as to outright refuse to share the gospel, to share love with someone else based on prejudice a belief that somehow being near to that person will harm yourself, will maybe corrupt you, will maybe expose you to certain things that you don't want to be exposed to. All of us will operate from time to time out of a fear of our fellow man. And that fear can hold us back from sharing the gospel with them. Now this is something that is particular to my experience. It may not be so prevalent here in Canada, but you know that I grew up in the South. And in the South, even up until very recently, there are, there are very deep 
racial prejudicial divides. Racism is very common in the South. I can recall as a five-year-old boy, little boy, my mom took me and my brothers and my sister to a swimming pool, a public swimming pool, city swimming pool. And uh, we were, it was Austin, Texas. It's hot like you wouldn't believe. So everybody goes to the swimming pool. And we went to the city swimming pool in Austin, and we were swimming there and having a great time. And I remember at one point in, in the course of the afternoon as we were swimming at the swimming pool, I got up to go to use the washroom. Left the pool, told my mom I was going to go use the washroom. She said, okay. I went in the washroom. There were a bunch of African-American black people that were in the washroom. I'm not entirely sure what they were doing. They were sort of hanging out there, talking. Um, Afterwards, I was asked whether or not they were doing something inappropriate there, whether they were buying or selling drugs or something like that. I have no memory of any of that. I can't recall what exactly they were doing. But I went into this washroom, used the washroom, and as I was leaving, there was another little boy there, maybe five, six, seven years old, my age, and I saw him, and I had recalled that he had been jumping off the high dive earlier in the afternoon and being so blown away and impressed by that because I was terrified to go off the high dive. And so I said to this little boy, I said, would you want to come play with me? To which he then turned around and said, you're a white boy. I'm not going to come play with you. I would never have anything to do with a white boy. Now, I had never thought one way or the other about being white or black or anything, so I kind of stood there for a second. I said, well, what difference does that make? <laughs> I didn't know what difference it made. He says, you're white. He just repeated it. And I said, yeah, you're black. To which he then reared back and just decked me. I fell on the floor, and he said, don't you call me black? I was so thoroughly confused. He had called me white. I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know why that was significant. I got up in tears and ran to my mom, who was waiting over by the pool on the far side of the pool. I said, Mom, I was in the bathroom in this, this and I, had a, I was getting a black eye at this point. He, I mean, he really clocked me. And I told my mom what had happened, and I remember my mom looking at me, and there was a deep sadness in her eyes. She gave me no explanation. She obviously assumed that I wasn't really old enough or mature enough to fully understand what was going on. So she just patted me on the shoulder and said, that's okay, Josh, go swim. Which I didn't want to go swimming because these kids are all out in the pool now and I'm terrified of them. I'm fearful of them. I'm afraid of them. And do you know why I got hit? It wasn't because I had done anything to this group of individuals myself, but they have grown up in the American South. They have had parents live through civil rights. They have had grandparents who can recall elderly uncles and other grandparents who lived through the Civil War. They have understood that their existence among us, amongst Southerners in the South, was not an existence of equality but a prejudicial existence in which their civil rights would be denied. They wouldn't get a fair shake. And operating out of anger or fear, that's probably why he hit me. Of course, my mom didn't explain any of that to me at the time. And I remember growing up never really being told one way or the other what I should make of that experience. 
And I remember going to church. And although no person within the church would ever say that whites are better than blacks or that one particular race is more significant than another race, there were sometimes curious teachings that were offered from, supposedly from the Bible, to explain why there were certain differences from one nationality or one ethnicity to the next. For example, it has been suggested to me, and I recall this from my grade six Sunday school class, that the reason why black people, it was argued, and please understand, this is not my perspective at all, but it was argued that one of the reasons why black people held low-wage, low-income jobs was because they simply weren't as intelligent as white people. And it was further argued that all of this was biblical, and it is not. Don't misunderstand me. But this was one curious argument that was made. Ham, who is the son of Noah, it was alleged was black. You'll recall that the three sons of Noah, when they came off the ark, Ham, his Noah got drunk, and the two brothers tried to cover Noah up with a sheet, but Ham kind of laughed at him, and so Noah cursed him. And then you go on to Genesis chapter 10, the table of nations, in which it tells you where all the descendants of Noah eventually settled, and Ham is described as having settled in northern Africa. And since people in Africa are black, it is then further assumed that the curse that was placed upon Ham was the curse of blackness. The Bible doesn't say this at all. It just says that Ham went to live in northern Africa. And then a whole bunch of assumptions are thrown on top of that to suggest that as a result of Ham's wickedness, all of Ham's descendants, who are black people, are now cursed with the curse of Ham. And as a result of that, they are racially inferior. That's never explicitly said. You need to understand these things are never explicit, but it's always quite thoroughly implied. I remember hearing that in grade six and just kind of being puzzled by it again, not really sure what to do with it. Other arguments were offered. There are other variations of this. It's also suggested in another argument that I heard, again, I don't recall when, that um, Cain, who murdered his brother Abel, was cursed for murdering his brother Abel, had a descendant who eventually married Ham. And Ham and the descendant of Cain, this is what has resulted in, in black people or African-American people. And then there are other, other suggestions. And, you know, all growing up, whenever these suggestions were made from the Bible in terms of racial differences and why certain races have come to exist the way that they have, why we have certain ethnicities. You know, there were certain scriptures that were, curiously enough, overlooked and never mentioned. While it is apparent that the Jews were chosen to be recipients of God's blessing, it's quite clear when we look at the Old Testament that they were never intended to hold that blessing for themselves. Rather, they were to transmit that blessing to the nations around them. It wasn't that they were an exclusive people. They were a chosen people. There's a difference between being chosen by God to serve, to engage in ministry versus being exclusive. But that was never quite mentioned. Yet you come to Matthew chapter 1, you look at the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ, and you find that within his lineage he has Rahab, who is a prostitute, Ruth the Moabitess, a Moabitess woman, 
these are prominent instances within Jesus' genealogy. These are his ancestors, who he comes from. Within the Gospels, perhaps the most remarkable incident is Christ's encounter with the Roman centurion, in which Jesus marveled at this man's faith. He comes to him. He asks for healing for his son. Jesus prepares to go with him to go heal his son, and the centurion stops him. He says, look, I know you don't have to come to my house. I am a man under authority, and I have men under authority, and when I tell them go here or go there, do this or do that, they go here and they go there and they do this and they do that, and I know you as the Messiah, you can just say the word. And Jesus marvels at this, and he says, I haven't seen this faith anywhere else in all the rest of Israel. This, he says, to a Gentile. He goes, to you, he goes on to say to the, to the centurion, I say to you that many will come from east and west, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham in the kingdom. But the subjects of the kingdom, that is the Jews, the Israelites, The subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus' own approach to the races within his own ministry is that all are accepted on the basis of faith in Christ. And there's no distinction in his approach in the way that he loves and the way that he ministers and heals and performs miracles. There's no distinction all who come, all who seek, he helps. And yet, while we were always told those Bible verses, and while we were always told all of these false arguments for why the races and the ethnicities were divided up the way they are, never were the two ever brought together and reconciled. I grew up very much so in a southern church in which we had a picture of Jesus hanging on the wall as a white man with blonde flowing hair and blue eyes. And it was well-styled hair. (laughs) I was shocked when I went to university, Dallas Baptist University, to begin pursuing my undergraduate degree. And someone showed me a picture of Jewish men and even suggested this might be something like what Jesus could have looked like. And there was no white hair, there were no blue eyes, there was no white skin. It was dark skin, dark curly hair, Middle Eastern looking men. God in his grace did not allow me to develop a deep-seated prejudice against African American or black people. I remember quite clearly growing up. My dear friend had a grandmother, and I went to take care of her one afternoon. She needed help being driven around to doctor's appointments. And uh, I had just started dating this girl named Shanti. And coming from the South, we have common English Christian names like Sarah or Amanda or Emily. Shanti was an unusual name. It's quite common in the African-American community. And so I was driving this lady around, and she's like, oh, so what's new with you, Josh? How are you doing? I said, good, good. She's like, are you dating anyone? Is there a girl in your life? And I said, why, yes, I'm dating a girl named Shanti. And she frowned, and she said, hmm. And I was not sure what to make of that. And uh, 
She said, you know, I, I don't really think it's right for white people to marry black people. And I had no idea what to say to her because I wasn't about to say to her, like, she's white because I didn't want to agree with her. But I didn't want to say, well, so sad, too bad. I'm going to marry whoever I'm going to marry. You know, I didn't know what to say. Like, what do you say to a lady in that particular instance? I was caught off guard. There was a boy in my high school, Darian Wilson. Darius was his name, Darius Wilson. African-American, upperclassman. I was grade 10, he was grade 12. Godly man, active in youth group, served the church, worked with the ushers to take up the offering every Sunday. This is a grade 10 high school boy. Served in every volunteer opportunity he could, helped out with VBS, worked in the soup kitchen, did everything. Was athletically amazing. Best football player on our entire high school team. And not just because he was genetically gifted, he was disciplined, he had a work ethic, he worked in the weight room, and he was smart. He worked his heart out on his homework. Scored a perfect 1600 on the SATs. A perfect score. Was accepted in any university, anywhere in the state. But he was very kind, and he was always kind to me. Eventually, he applied, wrote to his congressman, and received a letter of recommendation to be accepted to West Point, where he went and earned his degree in, believe it or not, astrophysics and engineering. He's literally a rocket scientist. Smart guy, strong guy, black guy. And he took me under his wing. And he discipled me in those later years in high school. A lot of good guys did. But I have these two experiences from meeting an African-American five-year-old boy in a bathroom at a city pool and walking hand-in-hand with one of the most godly men I've ever known. Smart, sophisticated, strong, godly man. They're both African-American. Church, it is not a person's skin color. It is their heart. And what Peter has been called to here in this particular passage, and what you and I are called to, is to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. To take it to everyone. Now, you hear me say that, and you say, well, that's easy said and more difficult to be done, Pastor. After all, in Afghanistan, we have heard stories of people backpacking across Afghanistan who were kidnapped and murdered. We've heard stories of individuals going down to Mexico who are kidnapped and held for ransom by the impoverished you know, cartels and all this down there in Mexico. We've heard of businessmen traveling to China who now have to apply for exit visas to leave China because China is involved in a horrific trade dispute with the Western Allied powers. We've heard all of these horror stories. It appears that if we were to go anywhere in the world, whether Afghanistan or China or even just into the southern hemisphere, we would be faced with certain dangers. And in response to all of that, I say to you, indeed, you will be faced with dangers. Indeed, you will have to worry and think about and plan and prepare for your safety. And yet, despite all of the risks that are inherent in taking the gospel all the way around the world, none of that is an acceptable excuse to look Jesus in the eye and to say, I'm not going to go, I'm not going to proclaim the gospel, when he has specifically said, you are to go and make disciples of all nations. I understand the dangers, and there is a place for being strategic, 
for thinking about how we're going to do it, for working together, for partnering with each other. There are ways it can be done which can minimize risk. But don't think for one second that your following Jesus will ever lead you to a place in this lifetime where there will be no risk. No one who follows the Savior who died for their sin on the cross can ever say that they are now by, thereby exempted from any suffering or any risk or any sacrifice because that is simply not the example that Christ gave us. To save you required him being thrust into the midst of unbelievable torture and persecution. To save you required him dying on the cross in your place. He teaches us so much. You're here today, you're like, how do I practically confront prejudice in my heart? How do I practically address this spiritual issue? You know, the Lord has used some really interesting verses over the years to help me in all of this. I want to share one of them with you this morning. In Isaiah chapter 51, verse 12, if you're struggling with prejudice... And it may not be something that I've even touched on this morning. It may be some other form of prejudice other than racial prejudice. But if you know in your heart there's a particular group or a particular individual that you struggle to share the gospel with because of whatever the issue is, I want to share this verse with you this morning. Isaiah 51, verse 12. God says to the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, he says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies, of the son of man who is made like the grass? Now, that's quite an interesting verse. In the context of Isaiah 51, the the people have cried out to the Lord. They said, Lord, we remember when you parted the Red Sea. We remembered when you worked all these miracles. We, We know of the promises that one day your people will walk with you in Zion. But Lord, where are you today? And the Lord's response is, where am I? I am the one who comforts you. Your doubt regarding the Lord has nothing to do with the Lord. He comes back and he responds, who am I? I am the one who comforts you. It's emphatic. He says, I, I am he who comforts you. And then his response is, who are you? Now, that's interesting language. Who are you? Doesn't that strike you as strange when he says, who are you that you are afraid? The meaning in this particular verse, Isaiah 51, 12, is that God regards fear of man as a manifestation of pride. It's a pride issue. When we say to somebody, oh, who do you think you are? How, how do you feel? How do you just get to do all of that? What we're saying is, what we mean by that is that we're saying you are presumptuous or you are possibly arrogant to barge in here, to say what you're saying, to do what, you know. When we say, who do you think you are? We're saying that you have an opinion of yourself that is higher than what it ought to be. God's response to Israel is, who do you think you are? Fearing man. That's what he says. Now, I had never thought of my being afraid of a certain person or a certain group of people I had never thought of that, or being afraid to witness, I had never thought of that as a sign of pride. 
To me, it's always been an, an embarrassment or, or a form of weakness to, to be afraid to go talk to someone. But this text in Isaiah 51.12 has helped me to see that this fear of talking to people, this fear of men, it's really rooted in pride. Who do you think you are being afraid of men? Who do you think you are fearing man? That's what he says. Fear of men is, in fact, a mark of pride. It's presumptuous. It presumes to take over the responsibility from God for our own well-being, our own protection, our own happiness. Fear gets up on the throne that belongs to God and says, don't do that. Don't go talk to that person. Don't, don't live your life this way because you might come into contact with those people over there. Fear gets on the throne and says, you know what? At the end of the day, I'm going to make decisions for me. I'm the one who's in control. And fear deceives us. Pride deceives us into thinking that we actually can safeguard ourselves if we just go about it the smart way. But in doing so, it steps onto a throne that belongs only to the Lord. The Lord says very emphatically, I am the one who comforts you. He starts off with that. He says, it's me, it's I. I am the one who comforts you. I am the one who takes care of you, who provides for you, who looks after you. And who do you think you are being afraid of man? God promises to be our comforter and our protector. And the one who promises us that commands us to go and to take the gospel all over the world. He knows the risks and he knows what's at stake. And he says, I'm the one who takes care of you. Who do you think you are to be afraid of man? I pray that you'd meditate on that. And as you're thinking about the difficulties you have in terms of sharing the gospel with a particular person or individual, remember that God created all mankind, that he loves all mankind, and he died for all mankind. And he says to you what he says to Peter. Do not call unclean or common what I have made clean. Do not hesitate to go and to share the gospel. Many, many, many years ago, I was at an old school Southern Baptist revival. Again, I was probably in kindergarten, somewhere in there. And at this particular revival, there was a Cherokee who stood up from off the reservation in Oklahoma. And he testified at this particular revival. He gave a testimony. He said that many, many, many years ago, there came to our tribe a man who told us about and extolled the God of the white man. We told him to leave. And after that, there came another man, a so-called Christian missionary, who said to us, don't drink any more fire water. Don't get drunk. Don't steal. I remember asking my mom, what is fire water? She was like, never mind. <laughs> don't drink any more fire water. Don't get drunk. Don't steal. And the Cherokee went on to say, we paid no attention to him either. Then there came a man, and he told us about a God who came down from heaven to live among us, who so loved us that he shared our lives. 
And he died in our place for our sins. He told us about a man, a God, who opened a door whereby we might be saved and enter into heaven. And even though we had told every other white missionary to go away and paid no attention to them, we heard this story of a God who lived our lives. And we could never forget it. And that's my perspective as well. That's my heartbeat. This world is forever different because Jesus came. This world will never be the same after the cross. Jesus has come, and above his cross, on a sign written in three different languages, speaking to three different nationalities, was posted these words, Here is the king. The king has come. Jesus has died. The cross has been planted in this world for all of us. And because of it, nothing will ever be the same ever again. And no one will ever be able to forget it. From every tribe, from every tongue, and from every nation, into all of eternity, the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ will be proclaimed. We sometimes are tempted to forget and to think that this is for us. This is our church. This is now. But it is for all. Never forget, church. Pray with me. Father, we say thank you for your word. Lord, we say thank you for the truth that you love all mankind, that you died for the sins of all. Lord, as we have been forgiven, we pray that you would work in our hearts to trust you and to not be afraid of men, but to fear you, O Lord, and to, to lean on you as our comforter, as the one who supports us whenever we go into any trial or any difficulty. Lord, our prayer this morning is that you would begin to heal the racial divides between the nations. Those things which have separated us, we pray, God, that you would continue to heal as you have already done by the power of the cross. Lord, our prayer this morning as we conclude is that we would never be a people who allow those types of prejudices and divisions to keep us separate from anyone who needs to hear the good news. Lord, our prayer is that we would not live lives of fear, but that we would be faithful. Father, as we have looked at the example of Peter this morning, I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts to show us that this is a common problem, that the greatest of Christians have struggled with. I pray, Lord, that we would not hide our heads in shame and ignore it, but that we would, by the power of the cross, confess and acknowledge these struggles to you and that you, Lord, would then be able to help us to overcome. Father, send us now, we pray, with the good news to all our community. Send us, we pray, to all the world. Lord, let us be messengers for a God that can never be forgotten. We pray in Christ's name, amen.